verse number 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The Bible says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, or we want you to know, verse 2, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Verse 5 says, And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord, more than we hoped, and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, and utterance, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. And this I pray, and you switch over to Philippians chapter 1, look at verse number 9. The Bible says, In this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Verse 10 says, That ye may approve, he wants their love to abound, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Let us go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for uh, the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to pen these words, Lord. We thank you so much for that. These things are, these words are so very uh, relevant here, even today and applicable, Lord. We ask that uh, you help us to understand how they are applicable to each one of us um, individually and as families and as a church, Lord. We pray, Lord, that um, you help us to see uh, what you want us to see in the text, Lord. Not me. Hide me behind your words, Lord, and, and just use all of us this morning, Lord, to see you, uh, to see your Son, Jesus Christ, high and lifted up in the text and song and all that we do, Lord. We thank you again. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So today's sermon, again, will be the first in a series entitled Abounding. And as, as we continue our walk with the Lord, I believe, personally, as I've been studying through this passage, if, if you know, we didn't plan on being in Philippians all the way through month, all the way through the month of January and end of February. We actually were continuing to study through the book of Matthew. And the Lord just um, gave me a message, I believe, to start off the new year with there in chapter 3, about us pressing forward, right, for, for the cause of Christ. Y'all remember that? That was our memory verse last month. Um, but he would not give me any peace about anything in Matthew at that point. I, I do believe we will return to that. Um, but we are here in Philippians, and from Philippians, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, but again, uh, we start with this series entitled Abounding, as we continue our walk with the Lord. And with that said, I believe with all my heart that God has called us, me specifically in my own life, and hopefully all of us, to abound in all things in Christ. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, as we've already read, Paul wrote, Therefore, as ye abound in everything, and then a list of handful of things, um, a handful of areas rather, culminating in grace. See that you abound in this grace also. We are, as Christians, to abound in the grace of God, to abound in many other things. Um, and to abound, of course, means to flourish. It means to thrive. It means to um, just to in, in, increase. The, word, the Greek word is periseo, and it literally means to exceed a fixed measure, to exceed a fixed number of measure, with the idea of doing so in large increments. You know, in the army we have that, you know, the bounding overwatch, you know, as, as, as units move out, you know. So they, that's what it means to bound. 
Um, so we want to abound. For example, speaking of abounding, I'm going to start off with maybe um, something that speaks to all of us at an individual level. Romans five, chapter, verse, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, says that the law entered into the world, the law entered that the offense might abound. Right, so the law entered. We were we were given a law so that we can see those areas that we didn't follow the law. Our knowledge of that would abound. That law entered, that the offense might abound. Put differently, God gave us the law so that we could see the abounding wickedness of our sin. The law, the Mosaic law, the commandments. However, you want to look at that, even the commandments in the New Testament. So, the law, more specifically, our inability to keep the law demonstrates to us, not to God. God doesn't need the law, we need the law. So it demonstrates to us how our sin abounds in its offense towards God so that we realize the status of our deep depravity. And to be honest, we need to see that. We need to see that we cannot please God without Jesus Christ. Even though it's been said many times for any person to be saved, that person must first realize they're lost. You know, you're not looking to be found if you don't think you're lost. If you're, even if you're on some deserted island somewhere, maybe we would like to be on a deserted island right, somewhere because it's so cold outside. Actually, it's not bad. It's in its 40s or something. So, But anyway, you have to realize that you're lost before you can be saved. And the Word of God clearly teaches over and over and over again that man is lost, that we are broken, that we need that fellowship that between man and God has been broken all the way back in the Garden of Eden. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, say that there is none, uh, writes that there is none righteous. There is none righteous, and it's abundantly clear here. No, not one, he says. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That's New Testament, mind you. This is Paul speaking to the world. Verse 23 in that same chapter further sums up our depravity with all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So our sin abounds in its offense towards God. And Romans chapter 6 tells us the penalty is death, eternal death. For the wages of sin is death. Friends, I don't think there's anything that's more clear in the Scriptures. There's some equally clear statements, but nothing more clear than the fact that our sin separates us from God and we need intervention. None of us on our own have any inclination to come to God at all. But God had a plan. Praise God, he has a plan. The Bible even says that Jesus said, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men unto myself. And, and he's been lifted up. So he is drawing, he is inviting you to come to the cross. You see, way back in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered this world, and through sin came death, and then the law entered, so that man can see that he was under the penalty of death. And then Jesus entered, and he brought atonement. He brought life. He brought truth, and he brought grace. John chapter 1, verse 17 says that the law was given by Moses, but grace came by Jesus Christ. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And this wasn't just any grace, mind you. This wasn't just grace like, you know, the grace period on your credit card. That's not what the kind of grace we're talking about here. Jesus did not bring an earthly grace limited by the character of men. He brought the grace of God. He brought a limitless grace. He brought an abounding grace 
that touches every aspect of our lives, and it's greater than all our sin. If you don't listen to anything else, remember that, that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. One drop of His grace is greater than the aggregate sin from humanity throughout the entire existence of humanity, the greatness of God's grace. You see, the law entered that the offense might abound, but the rest of Romans 5.20 states that where sin abounded, grace. Grace did much more abound. Not a little bit more, not barely over sin. Much more. That's the grace of our God. And while Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is indeed death, it concludes that verse by stating that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have eternal life through Jesus Christ all because of His grace. But we must receive that grace before we can abound in anything in this life. As Paul commands the church here in Corinth, there in 2 Corinthians 8, we must first abound in the grace provided for salvation. We must receive that payment. We must believe and receive Jesus Christ. The devils believe, they tremble. We must believe and receive the payment that God made for us on the cross of Calvary. We must personally receive Him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and then not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And as I often quote probably every, every Sunday or every other Sunday, maybe that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's the reception of that grace, clear and simple salvation right there in the, in the pages. We must call upon the name of the Lord in faith to receive that grace. In fact, Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's anybody. That's anybody. But as we read in 2 Corinthians 8 and in Philippians chapter 1, it is abundantly clear that the Apostle Paul is writing to those who have already received this grace. And I assume and I trust that I am speaking to people who have also already received the grace of Jesus Christ. But if you are here and you have it, don't let that stop you. It's the most important grace you will ever receive. In verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 8, Paul once is telling us to abound in that grace. You have that grace. You have the grace that God's given you through the cross. Now I want you to abound because that grace touches every aspect of our life. Verse eight, uh, our chapter eight, verse seven of Second Corinthians says, "As ye abound in everything, as you abound in faith, as you abound in utterance, as you abound in knowledge, as you abound in diligence, as you abound in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also." Now we're going to talk about that grace as we get. Um, um, through the series, if you will, that specific grace that he's speaking of there. But I want to say this morning, I hope that you see the connection between 2 Corinthians 8 and Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Is it's uh, He's writing to that church at Corinth about the churches of Macedonia. Look at verse number 1 again of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, Moreover, brethren, we do you the wit of the, of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. If I can put it in my hillbilly lingo, let me tell you about another church down the way, how they experience or are experiencing God's grace, how they are abounding in God's grace. I think I have a map up here. You can see where Philippi is um, up there to the north and all the way down there to the bottom. You see the land, uh, you see the, the, the town of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a was a very rich city. And the up there at Philippi, even though it was 
near a port. It was, it was not close enough to the port to benefit from all the, the necessities or all the, the, the nice things that a port would offer. So it was a poor, a poor city. And more importantly, it wasn't really, a, it was probably a mediocre city, but the church in that city was, was poor. The, Philippi, uh, the, the Philippian church was a poor church. Corinth was, was a rich church. Um, but the church in Corinth, even though it was well-funded, was worldly. And the church in Philippi, even though it was not well-funded, was thriving, was abounding in grace. But before we get too far into, or so before we get too far into what Paul had to write about the churches of Macedonia to the churches of Corinth, because he's kind of like bragging on them, follow their example. But before we get to that, let's look a little bit more detail in what he wrote to those churches in Philippi, there in Philippians chapter 1. In fact, he even says in the beginning of verse number 1 of Philippians chapter 1 that he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi. But let's look specifically at a handful of verses beginning right there in verse number 9. Paul shares his prayer with them. He shares his prayer with this Philippian church that he would later brag on, if you will, if I can use those words. He says, This I pray that your love may abound yet more in knowledge and in all judgment, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. So this first first verse here, verse number 9, tells us to abound in in a couple of different areas here. But first and foremost, we see that we are to abound in love. We are to abound in love. I think, I, I know that's probably maybe too simple. I understand that. Love is something that we use, and it's been redefined a thousand different times in the world that we live in, but I'm not talking about all those different types of love. I'm talking about God's love. And Paul really doesn't dwell too much on the importance of love here, only that we are to abound in that love. But love, if you really think about this, and you really study the entirety of the New Testament and even the Old together, love is how all the great truths of this world come together. Love is how the great principles that we're supposed to follow, all of that comes together with love. I mean, think about it. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation began with God's love. It began with God's love. Granted, this following statement is a bit lofty, but God's grace would not exist without God's love. God's grace would not exist without God's love. And as we've already read, grace came by Jesus Christ, but he was sent with that grace because God loved. For God so loved that he sent his son. So love, just to be clear, is more than an emotion. It's foundational. In fact, Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, he wrote there in that famous chapter of love, he gave us faith, hope, and charity, and these three. But the greatest, he says, of these is charity. Now, the Greek word used for charity is, of course, agape love, which is the same word Paul used here when he wrote, I pray that your love, your agape love, may abound yet more and more. Not that we're going to go into a study of all the different types of love, but agape love is that that top love, that that God-sourced love, and it really only comes from God. We are to have our love abound, our agape love abound. And as I was putting this together, I was thinking to myself, you know, it doesn't really matter where I'm at in my life. 
how close I am to God, there's room for abounding, not just small increments, but there's room for abounding in my love for God. And regardless of where any of us are in our walk with God, we are to abound in that love. You know, none of us, none of, not one of us, I don't think, I, I can't tell the future, but I would be surprised if any of us look back on our lives when we're older, when you're, when you're old like me or you're or older, older than me. Over, older and older and older. Um, none of us are going to look back at our lives and conclude that we love God too much. It's just not going to happen. Or we're not going to look back that we, well, am I, I wish I loved my spouse a little less, or I love my children a little less. That's not, that's not going to come across your mind. You're going to, if anything, you're going to think the opposite. Man, I wish I'd have loved God more during my life. I wish I'd have loved my children more while they were home, and, and so forth and so forth. We don't love enough to be a people of love. Now, I understand the propensity of this statement being misunderstood as in we, of course, shouldn't love the world. Those who are of the world, you know, they love the world. They love the things of the world and so forth. We shouldn't love sin or self. But we're not talking about that type of love this morning. That's, that's an empty, emotional love. We are talking about agape love. We're talking about loving God, loving the brethren, loving people. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Because you go to church three times a week? Because you read your Bible? Because you pray? Because you lead people to the Lord? No. If you have love one to another, which actually is the source of all those things that I just mentioned. So we are talking about a love sourced in God. And this kind of love is a pure love. And it's properly placed. It's a love that's always in the right place. And I think if there is... If there's one practical word that can define agape love, I would, I would say maybe non-reciprocal. You can't earn it. Nothing is required for it in return. Agape love can stand alone as a one-way love if needed because it is based on the character of the one giving it and not on the character of the person receiving it. That's agape love. Our love for each other as spouse and our love for children is not based on how good they did that day. Agape love loves them always the same. Actually, as, as we look here in the text here, it should be an abounding love for the things that God has given us. Now, there are certainly some expectations um, tied to agape love. God wants some things in return, even though they're not required. Um, but the fact that God commended his love to us while we were yet sinners demonstrates the pure, unmerited gift of God's love. If, there's, if God loved us while we were sinners, there's, there's a chance of us, while we were not saved, to never be saved, and yet God still loves us, knowing that we're never going to come to Him. But we're not of that persuasion, or we've come to Jesus Christ. We Agape love, again, is a love that demonstrates unmerited gift. It's a, it is an unmerited gift of love from God, and that's the love we are to abound in, to abound in. Remember, make leaps ahead. Love is what connects us to God. And love is what connects us to each other. Love is the source of holy living. Love is the source of all the commandments. Jesus said that the entirety of the law, every ought to, if you will, in the scriptures, has its foundation in loving God and loving our fellow man. Love. Paul expounded on this teaching also in Colossians 3. If you want to turn there or look up on the screen, I have it here. 
uh, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. He says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And notice that last one. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfection. Above mercy, put on charity. Above kindness, above humility, above meekness, above patience, above even forgiveness. We are to put on agape love. We are to abound in that love. And you might ask how Paul could write that these things are less, these mercy and kindness and so forth, because they are very important characteristics of holy living, how they must take a back seat to love, and it's true that they must because they are sourced in that agape love. You see, all the mercy and kindness without love is shallow and short-lived. We need love. And like there is no grace without love, neither is there true mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, or forgiveness. And with this truth, with that realization, I think there comes some great introspect, if you will. You see, the solution, the solution for a personal, based on this verse here, the solution and what we've been studying, the solution for a personal lack of mercy on others, the solution for a lack of humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness is not completely solved through maturity. It's not completely solved through our experience, but by love. By love. A lack of grace, get this now, a lack of grace is therefore not connected to the grace that we have. It's not connected to how many blessings we have. It's not connected to any of those things. The grace that we live out in our lives and the grace that we give out is connected to our love for God and our love for our fellow man. But notice also, as we continue in this passage here, that this is not where our abounding stops. Look at that verse there. I pray, verse 9, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge. So it's, love is not where abounding stops, it's where abounding begins. So not only are we to abound in love, we are to abound in knowledge or in learning. Now in context, notice again that our abounding in knowledge is connected to and even sourced in are abounding in love, which we'll come back to that. But I want to tell you that just about every commentary that I have on this, they just have a few sentences on these group of passages and they move on. I have about 10 or 12 commentaries and not much said about this passage. They say a few things and move on, but I think there's, there's much more to this verse, as is always. The verses are, you know, they're, they're inexhaustible. For one, I want to point out that it's clear that the imperatives in verse number 9, if you can see there in your text, the imperatives in verse number 9 are connected to the abilities in verse number 10. In other words, verse 9 states that our love is to abound in knowledge and judgment so that we, as verse 10, may approve things that are excellent and be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Furthermore, not only is love connected to knowledge and judgment, but knowledge and judgment are connected together as both have the same source and same foundation. And just like Paul referred to a pure, God-sourced love when he wrote that we are to abound in that agape love, I'm convicted, uh, convinced that he is referring also to a pure, God-sourced knowledge and a God-sourced judgment or discernment. 
we are to abound in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge and in and, and those things that please God. Now, for the record, I believe that this includes a very broad spectrum of things. I think it includes topics like math and science and so forth because those truths reflect our Creator. Two plus two that equals four. I know I've not always got that right. <laughs> but um, it's that, that logic reflects a Creator. Now, this doesn't mean that we all have to be great mathematicians or molecular scientists, praise the Lord, unless God has given you that passion. Uh, but it does mean that these studies should begin with God. These studies should always begin with God. We are to abound in the knowledge, in the love of the knowledge uh, that, that reflects God. So it doesn't mean that we um, can't do those things, but I think it does mean that those studies should begin with God. For example, uh, and practically speaking, if Thomas Edison, if his son, Thomas Edison's son, uh, whatever his name may have been, Eddie maybe, I don't know, wanted to learn more about how a light bulb worked, it would be unwise of him to hypothesize how that light bulb worked and teach as truth his theory without running it by his father who had invited him over and over and over and over and over to show him how the light bulb worked. And the same is true with God. In other words, true knowledge begins with God. We start with God. Proverbs 1.7 states that the fear of the Lord is somewhere near the beginning of learning things. No, it's the beginning of knowledge. So if you and I want to abound in learning, if we desire our love to abound in the knowledge of God, it must begin with God. You know, if I were trapped in a room with 100 people, none of y'all, so don't envision this. Uh, if I were trapped in a room with 100 people and I was having some, some heart attack or something along those lines there, I would not ask if there was a plumber in the room or a carpenter. I would ask for a doctor. And if there was more than one doctor in the room, I would want the smartest one. I wouldn't care what he looked like, what culture he come, male or female. I did not care. I would want the smartest doctor. And you can, don't go too far with that comment, but um, you can think where I'm going there. But I would want the best and the brightest doctor because I want to live. Well, look at this in the broader spectrum of life. By far, the very, the most, the smartest person that I know in my life is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the smartest person I know, the most wise. He's all-knowing, the Bible says. He should be the first person that comes to your mind when you're thinking about the smartest person in your life. It's Jesus Christ. And like Paul said in verse 3, he says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Just on a practical sense, he's saying that because he knows all. So I'm going to all these things down here don't matter because I'm going to put all in what Jesus is telling me. Paul said, I count all things but lost that I may know him. Well, again, the smartest person I know is Jesus Christ. And he officially only endorses one book. In fact, he wrote it. He wrote it. And if you and I truly want to abound in learning, it begins with knowing God. It begins with studying God. It begins with knowing and studying the Word of God. It's not just words from 100, 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 2,000, 3,000. It's the Word of God. It's a major, this concept, this truth is a major ingredient to what verse 10 says, and that we are to approve things that are excellent and that we are to have the ability to be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. And because our learning of God, this is something I thought was kind of interesting, because our learning of God is sourced in our love for God. I think we can say that. We can agree with that, right? Our learning of God is sourced in our love for God. If that's true, 
I don't think it's a stretch to say that our desire to learn about God is also connected to our love for God. Our desire to learn more about God is connected to our love for God. I know that I have said that already this morning that we don't, we don't have to be mathematicians, but the common denominator uh, in learning in mercy and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and in grace is love. That's the common denominator. So the question could be this morning, I could ask, do you love God? But that question might come off as a bit disrespectful to those who have demonstrated at least some measure of love by being here this morning. So like Paul, I want to change the, change the question a little bit. Our prayer for God's people is not that they love God. That should be a given. You should already be loving God. But what's this prayer here? I pray that your love may abound, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. So I don't have to ask, do you love God? But I can ask, with the authority of Scripture here, does your love abound in Christ? Does your love abound? That's the question. And if so, is your growth in the love of Christ commensurate with your growth in the knowledge of Christ? That's the connection that Paul puts here. And I think the latter is former evidence of the former. Your growth in the knowledge of God is evidence that you're growing in your love for God. Does your love abound? And as stated earlier, knowledge and judgment are connected to each other because both of them have the same source and foundation, the the love of God. So to a certain extent, abounding in one is evidence that you are abounding in another. And verse 9 again states that our love is to abound more and more in knowledge, and then he moves on to judgment. We are to abound in all judgment. Now the Greek word used for judgment here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, is a very interesting word. It's not used anywhere else in all of Scripture. Only one time right here. I will not pronounce it because it's difficult. (laughs) But uh, it it speaks of discernment at the highest level of discernment. The highest level of discernment. That judgment word there, all judgment. It is discernment in moral matters, in ethical matters, in intellectual matters, truly in all things, which is probably why Paul wrote all judgment in, in the Greek, pas, judgment. It means to make the right choice in all matters according to what is true. And with this understanding, I took a little bit of liberty here and said that we are to abound in logic, in logic. If I can put it another way, we are to, as Christians, we are to traffic in truth, not fairy tales, truth. Now, most would agree that knowledge and judgment go hand in hand, and to judge without knowledge really is a fool's errand, and it's ridden with multiple negative consequences. Proverbs 13, 16 says, Every prudent man dealeth with knowledge but a fool layeth open his folly. As Christians, Christians who love God and have a desire to abound in that love, we are to be the prudent man in that proverb, not the the fool. We are to deal with knowledge. To deal with knowledge is more than just having knowledge. It's to operate in that knowledge. It's to practice that knowledge, to apply that knowledge, to make sound decisions based on that knowledge, not to make sound decisions or not to make decisions based on emotion or rhetoric, like we often see just about everywhere we look today. We are to make decisions based on truth. There is truth, absolute truth. In other words, and and right here, and by the way, it's right here. In other words, we are to live and operate, you and I as Christians, in reality, 
in reality, we're not to live in a fantasy world of make-believe and, and so forth, and on and on and on, we can talk about those things, but we are to live in truth. This should guide us. The truth should guide us. You could call this, of course, discernment, and you'd be correct, but it is discernment based upon the knowledge of God. It is discernment based on logic, not man's logic, not man's wisdom, but God's logic and God's wisdom. Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. I know that's harsh. I know that even seems harsh, but that's the truth of the Word of God. Every feeling that you have, every sense you might have, every conviction, what you believe, what you believe is right or wrong, regardless of where it comes from or where it came from, even if you believe it's from the Holy Spirit, if it contradicts the written word of God, it's wrong. It's wrong. And by the way, the Holy Spirit never contradicts the Holy Scriptures. Quite the contrary, the Holy Spirit illuminates the Scriptures. It enables the Scriptures. It enables us to understand the Scriptures so that we can live a holy life void of offense to God. We need to be holy. In fact, take your Bible and go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Just a couple of pages to the right, maybe. Uh, Maybe more than a couple. Um, Hebrews chapter 4. And I've been there a couple times. I think even Brother Krauss uh, uh, mentioned this verse last week. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. We see in this passage that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to help us discern. Look at verse 12. For the Word of God is quick, it's powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So again, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to help us discern our thoughts, whether they be of God or not. He, through the Scriptures, He, the Holy Spirit, enables us to make wise decisions based on knowledge and based on logic. One unique aspect of this verse is the Greek word used for discerner. In its form right here, it's the only time, again, today and twice in one sermon, I know, but it's the only word in all of Scripture, used right here. Now, there's a couple other tenses, but in its form, only right here. And it's where we get the word critical from, kritikos in the Greek. So God is saying that His Word is critical of who we are on the inside. It criticizes us, in in, in the positive sense there, to help us see what's right. God's Word to us, not us to each other, but God's Word to us. God is saying that His Word is critical of who we are on the inside. It discriminates, if you will, the thoughts and intents of our hearts as Christians and as children to help us make the wise decisions. Sometimes you'll see people making the wrong decisions in life. I've been there. I lived a few years not serving the Lord and not to my, uh, to my shame. I don't glory in that. But I look back at the life and how many times I opened this? Zero. Zero. For all those days I was a Christian, not in this book, and then I'm surprised that my life's a mess. And then I come back to this book, and look at that. My, I mean, the world's still a mess, but I'm at peace. I'm at peace because I serve a God who is the God of peace. And God is saying that His Word, through the Holy, or the Holy Spirit through His Word, can do that. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 really pairs well with Philippians chapter 1, 
verse 10, where one of the reasons Paul gives us for abounding, go back to Philippians chapter 1, look at verse number 10. One of the reasons Paul gives us for abounding is so that we may be sincere without offense to the day of Christ. Now that word sincere, to me, is a fascinating word. It's not a word that you would think a first century writer would use in this sense. I know it's something that's very common today, but here in the Greek, it means to be tested by sunlight. To be tested by sunlight. According to Strong's Concordance, it specifically means to be found pure when unfolded and examined by the light of the sun. That's the, that's the word Paul used to say that, that we are to be sincere, be ready to be examined, be pure, because that examination is coming. That examination is, of course, the Word of God. So in context, we understand this as God, uh, as God exhorting us to abound in knowledge and in all judgment so that we can be found pure, but not when examined by the sunlight, but by Him. By His Word. How long do we do this? Until the day of Christ. All the way to the rapture. All the way to our Lord's return. To the day of Christ, He says. So the more we abound in knowledge, in the knowledge of God's Word, the more we abound in our ability to discern and make decisions based on true truth and logic. God discerns our heart so that we can discern the times. God discerns our heart so that we can discern the times. And abounding in knowledge and judgment is how we live without offense until the day of Christ, being filled, as the next verse says, with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of all. All of this is to the glory and praise of God. And as we close this morning, I want to say that, I want to remind you that if we desire to abound in judgment, and we should, by the way, and if we desire to abound in knowledge, and we should, both of those things are rooted and sourced in an abounding love for Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, I pray that your love may abound. I pray that your love may abound. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for all of us. This is my prayer for myself, that my love may abound. Not a fair-weather love, not an intermittent love, an abounding love. An abounding love. Maybe we can't see the difference between our love today and yesterday, but there should be a difference maybe over the time, maybe over a month or a couple months. We should be see a difference in our love for the Lord, an abounding love. To abound, again, means to flourish or to thrive, to exceed a fixed number of measure with the idea of doing so in large increments. And one of the best truths that seem to be forgotten from time to time and maybe it slipped our mind. It certainly about halfway through kind of dawned on me from the Lord, I think. Love is still a choice. Love is a choice. Isn't that wonderful? We, we can do what Paul is telling us to do, what God through Paul is telling us to do. We can love. We can choose to abound in knowledge because love's a choice. We can choose abound in logic and discernment because love's a choice. We choose to love. And then we choose to abound in that love. Well, I choose to abound. And I invite you to do it with me. Let us all choose to abound more and more and more and more and more and more. Let's go to our Savior in prayer.